Paul, the holidays are well, pretty much wrapped wrapped up for now. Um, January second, we're here recording today. How was your um, How was your last couple of weeks? It was great. Uh, relaxing period over the holidays. Um, usually, I don't do any traveling or anything. Um, for the most part, family come to us. I, we, my wife and I, we hosted Christmas dinner this year as we typically do. Uh, New Year's was a fairly quiet event. Uh, just got together with another couple. Um, but yeah, Christmas is always fun in terms of the, the gift receiving, gift giving. Um, how about your Christmas? Good. It, it was great. I like this time of year taking it off because it's, um, it's when a lot of other people are taking the time off. So un- unlike other parts of the year where you take a vacation and you're the only one away while the rest of the people you work with are working away and the inbox is piling up. I like this time of year because it's generally quiet. Yeah. Something you said for the, having that nice quiet week where you don't have a lot of emails is nice to just to get caught up on stuff. Um, you know, typically I, I don't take a lot of vacation this time around because you know, I prefer to take vacation during the summer when I can be out golfing, enjoy the weather. But yeah, it's just quiet this time of year, which which is good. There's definite definite advantages to that. Did you um, give or receive any interesting gifts this year? Well, in terms of receiving gifts, uh, I got a, a golf distance finder. Hopefully, it might help help improve my game. <laughs> how, do, how does that work? Is it like a sensor sort of thing, or it, it's sort of like a, a binocular. Where if you're trying to figure out the number of the, the amount of yardage to to a pin, um, in terms of like club selection, so yeah, like you you just point this this um this binocular at at the flag and it'll tell you the approximate yardage rather rather than golf, having to guess. Golf finder. When you Sorry, I meant to say like golf range finder. N- nothing can help me find my golf balls. They're all over the place. <laughs> Well, I was intrigued by this uh, when it sounded like a fairly novel invention. Mm-hmm. Now it's just kind of what's existed for years, but you just happened to get one as a gift. Now, to my knowledge, there's no such thing as a golf ball finder. That's probably some kind of uh, conspiracy from the uh, the golf ball manufacturers wanting, <laughs> wanting people to lose them, keep their business alive. But, yeah, the the, uh, the golf, the, the distance finder, I, I don't know if that's going to – Maybe improve my game. I don't know. I'll, I'll take anything, but uh, it, it is kind of, it'll be a useful thing to, to have, which I'm, I'm looking forward to using. In terms of gift giving, um, my wife and I were probably a little overly generous to my son this year. We bought him one of those VR headsets. Oh. Like virtual reality okay. headsets that you, you put over, over your Is that over like the eyes. Oculus one or is yeah, this the a PlayStation Oculus, one? Yeah, or? It's, it's, yeah, the Oculus. Okay. Um, and we also got him gerbils. He's been pestering us for months, wanting to get gerbils. Gerbils and so, virtual reality for Christmas. Yeah, so a very eclectic mix of gifts that he's received. <laughs> now, you have cats, though. Like, is there going to be any issues with the cat and the gerbils? We hope not. <laughs> is there, well, are the, there the ground gerbils... rules laid out with your son about that? Like, okay, now the gerbils stay in the Yeah, he's or... he's very... Re- well, he, he's 12, so he's very responsible in that manner. So um, he's the first one to... to to make sure the cats are out of his um but yeah no the, the gerbils are in a cage so they're they're safe but nonetheless we always make sure that the cats are, are sort of kept out of the room or are certainly not allowed in there without supervision you, you cool. never know what could happen all right well maybe that'll make up for a future <laughs> episode uh if, yeah if you happen to have an episode 
at home. About <laughs> I hope this. not. So for I, me, I, I, I got, <laughs> I got, uh, yeah, how about yourself? Yeah. This Yeti mug I got, uh, it's a, it's a metal mug by the company called Yeti. Y E T I. I see their names on coolers and, and things. Um, I got it from my boss actually. And I got to say, I love this thing. The quality is it's first of all, it's dishwasher safe, which I find any type of like thing you use to eat or drink with. If it's dishwasher safe, that's a huge thing. I hate something you have to specifically hand wash that you can't put in the dishwasher. So my Yeti mug and forgiving. I, uh, I gave, I think a very creative gift this year to my brother and well, I guess is he our brother-in-law or my brother-in-law? Uh, he's my he's dating my my wife's sister or my sister-in-law, dating long-term partnership. I feel like I'm sliding into a hole I can't dig out of. But anyway, <laughs> I bought. Yeah, he's a-, a big fan of the movie Sling Blade, and so I bought. Uh, I had a the I, I I got a copy of the script because he likes to recite lines from the movie. So I got. Uh, I ordered the, the the pages and I had them bound together at like an off uh, one of those printing house places, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So now he's got his personal copy of the Sling Blade script that he can uh, take it out anytime he wants and recite from it. That's actually a pretty cool idea. I never thought about that. Like for someone that's a, it's a huge movie buff, or if there's a particular movie, let's say like The Godfather or something like that, you know, to be able to have like the the screenplay. That, that yeah, would actually, be yeah, it's actually very creative. I'll give you credit for that. I, I'm happy because yeah. I've talked on a previous episode about my angst around Christmas gifts or any kind of gift giving. If I, mm-hmm. I get a lot of angst uh, regarding it, so when you f- except when I find something cool, then it's it feels great to give a gift that has some creativity behind yeah, it. And, and that is that is a good point about yeah. I like to to be creative or or sort of think about things that people really want. You know, sometimes buying gift cards is unavoidable, but I typically don't want to buy gift cards. I'd rather buy an actual gift. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we probably should um, move. We're we're doing something a little bit different today, which is uh, we're bringing a a guest on. And uh, this guest is actually someone that I've been talking to for a while about coming onto the podcast. I think been probably... I don't know, two years maybe that we've been discussing having, uh, having this gentleman come on the show. And, um, he's, uh, he's going to talk a little bit about what he does. So it's, I'll call it a little bit interview style, but then we're going to, uh, have a few topics that we, we've pulled out that we're going to all talk about together. So I just wanted to introduce my brother-in-law, John, who, uh, he's just come on to the camera. Hey, John. Hi. Hi, Clark hey. and Paul. Hey, John. How's it going? Excellent. Glad, glad you so could much. be here. Oh, I've been. We've been talking about this for a couple of years, so I wasn't sure if if it was serious or not. And then but here you are. Here mm-hmm. I am. I was bugging Clark about it and teasing him a bit, and then he he said, "Okay, well, how about tomorrow then?" Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's yep. how it happened. We, we we've made your dreams come true. Being being on the on the podcast here. <laughs> yeah, long time listener, big fan. Good. There I am. Yeah, and I've and I've and this is something I've made a point of saying in the past that um, you know we're we're always open to people giving us feedback, uh, comments, questions, topic ideas, and and I always open it up that if you want to be a guest on the show, 
let us know. And so uh, we're bringing that to reality. We've done that with a couple other people before, but we're bringing John on who, um, as he said, longtime listener, I think we list, he listens to us in the commute to, to work, which we're going to talk a little bit about what John does, which I think is interesting. So welcome, John. Good to have you. Yeah, thanks so much. So, so John, I was, I, go ahead, Paul. Sorry, I was just going to note there that John's with a very exclusive company because we haven't had a lot of guests. We'd like to have more, um, but it's it's been quite a while since we've had someone on board. True, um, actually, I should should yeah. say that 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 there's been other hosts like with Salim and Justin have come on, where it's me and and them or Teresa. Um, but you're right. I think the only time we've ever really brought it, or Mike and Ed have been on the show. It, 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 this is one of the few times where we've had like you and me, Paul, bring somebody like a third person on. You're right. Yeah. Well, you had my cousin, Ken, he was on an episode. I'd like to have him come back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we need to, we need to have some more guests. But keep today is about keep about us our, on our toes. But yeah. And today is about our guest, John. We we want to make him feel uh, welcomed and wanted here. So John, the, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on is because of your uh, career, which uh, it has a pilot of commercial mm-hmm. aircraft uh, works for a company called Porter here uh, in based out of Toronto for 16 years now. I think John is uh, you've been there since the beginning of the company, right? Yeah, it was, it was hired there in the beginning of the, the, uh, the startup uh, actually before we got any airplanes at all. Um, and uh, I had worked up in, in the Arctic up in Yellowknife, uh, you know, pilots typically have to, Build some experience before moving on to an airline, and and for me, I I decided to go where the job was, and which was up uh, up in the high Arctic in in Yellowknife, north north of Canada here, in northern Canada, and I uh, was there for four years, and then uh, it was time to come back uh, south. So, uh, and my daughter was born up there, and that's that, that was that was a bit of a cue to come live a bit closer to to family. So. Uh, Porter was just starting off, and and I happened to be lucky enough to be part of that startup, and I've been there ever since. Well, uh, and it's and you joined or got into. I think what was your your first day at aviation school? Was it like the like September thirteenth, two thousand one, or something? Yeah, that's right. So actually, before that, it was it was a week before September eleventh, actually. Um, ah. So I I had a very stable job in insurance. Uh, this is how the sort of family intertwined a little bit here. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, I've been thinking about being a pilot really since high school. And uh, for whatever reason, maybe I didn't have the confidence to do it at the time or thought it was going to be too difficult. Uh, studied economics in university and got into finance and insurance. Uh, and then, just got to the point where I thought, well, if I don't do it now, then I'll never do it. So I quit my my full time uh, job. And how old was when you? How old were you when you quit the job? The yeah, so I was job? I was twenty four, which right twenty four now seems so young, but uh, it feels a bit old uh, to be a pilot. Um, mm. Which is a very strange thing now, but uh, but I felt like. At the time, I was like, "Oh, geez, I'm I'm 24. I'm really old. I don't have much time to waste here. I gotta get get going, or else I'll never do it." Uh, which, is, of course, is over 20 years ago now. But um, yeah, so at the time, I 
I started flight school and a week into it, I remember we were pulled out of class and we all sat in the lounge there and, and watched as the, the airplanes hit the buildings. Um, so that wasn't very good timing for my, my career. Um, but, uh, yeah. So when, when I graduated a year after that, it was, uh, it was kind of an intense one year program. Um, uh, the only place where, where there was any prospects of any jobs were, were up in places like Yellowknife. So, uh, and moved up there. Uh, I had a friend who, uh, well, a friend of a friend, friend of my father's actually, who, uh, let me stay on his couch and I quickly got a job as a substitute teacher, which, uh, which is a funny thing to, to do when you go somewhere new, but uh, up there you have to have a high school diploma to be a substitute teacher. So I, I was qualified with zero training and experience to be a substitute teacher from kindergarten all the way up to high school. Uh, so, so you, yeah. you went up there without a job in hand. So you got the job as a substitute teacher and then <clears throat> started looking for work or you had some leads or irons in the fire and went up to, and just planted yourself there, became a, te- a substitute teacher. How did that work? Yeah. So what I did is say when I graduated or as close to graduating, I started phoning every small airline or small aviation company from West coast to the East coast and up to the North. And it seemed like that the, the few companies that were up in Yellowknife were the only ones a would take my phone call and, and B had any sort of prospect of hiring anybody. Hmm. Uh, and so I just, just decided to go up there and, and, um, see what would happen. And that was the advice I was given as well. When I, when I talked to people who were, were up there. Uh, so yeah, it was every, every week I would go to all the little companies up there and, uh, get rejected for nine months straight every week. And then I finally got a job at a company called Arctic Sunwest Charters and, uh, was working in their dispatch for another nine months. And then uh, one day they just said, okay, we got a flying job here for you. Now I had a bunch of uh, questions about flying, but uh, in general, now that you mentioned the being up in Northwest Northwest territories, was it or Yukon? Yep. Uh, Northwest territories and Yellowknife. I should know. I should know Yellowknife, (laughs) right? Grade eight geography, maybe grade seven. Um, you probably had some strange stories being up there in terms of uh, maybe cargo you had to haul or pe- certain types of people or like what was there something interesting you ever in- encountered in terms of like pe- people or cargo or yeah so we we would fly just about anything that was safe to put in the airplane um, mostly we would go up there to uh, help exploration companies establish camps. So you'd get a kind of a, a map and then a, a square on the map. Do so you got to, you know, find a spot to land somewhere within that square. And so we'd find a, maybe a frozen lake or, or a beach or something like that and uh, land the airplane there. Um, and then establish kind of a, a base camp area where we'd fly in all the supplies and the people uh, and they would start making their, their camp exploration camp. Um, what I, f- I was going to say, what I find kind of interesting is that, you know, as as a rookie pilot, you know, I guess some of your first jobs are, are probably some of the more challenging jobs because yeah. being in Northwest Territories, obviously the weather is going to play an important factor and, and you're flying into some pretty 
remote areas, there's got to be a, quite the element of, of danger involved. So, yeah, I, I guess you're it's christening by fire, I'm assuming, right? Right. So that is a f- very funny thing about aviation, Paul. And, uh, you know, typically new pilots will either start off as being instructors, which is a weird thing. You graduate and boom, you're teaching other pilots how to fly airplanes. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. Or, uh, you know, you do something like what I did, which is to go up, uh, you know, fly from s- some small airline up uh, up in the Arctic somewhere. Uh, some select few get to fly with, you know, on a very sort of um, maybe safer is the right word, but or, or not, or more concrete path of uh, starting off with a regional airline right off the bat of graduating. But that's that's pretty rare, actually. By far, the more common path is to either do instructing or some sort of small uh, airline or or whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I, you know, going up there, I I wouldn't trade the, that experience for anything. We we did have to fly in extremely challenging weather, and you know, doing things like uh, having to make your own landing strip uh, is 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 an experience that I wouldn't trade for anything either. We. You know, the weather would have to be fantastic when you go up there the first time so you don't, you know, land into a snowbank or onto any sort of uh, rocks or whatnot. You have to be able to see really well. But then uh, then you would kind of uh, clear the clear the strip for, for everybody else if you're the first one in. So with shovels and, you know, we'd have uh, orange uh, garbage bags to kind of make little markers along the, the, the mm. little runway that we'd make. And then that, that would then be... The place where you'd take off and land for that exploration camp. Um, did that? Did you find the people you were flying got a little nervous when they would look at each other and say, "Orange plastic garbage bags for for markers," or were they like, "Wow, this guy's really these guys are really intuitive or or uh, creative about how to get stuff done?" Like, or like, did you sense that at all? What people were like nervous about some of this kind of ingenuity that you were doing? Well. Uh, not so much. I think the people that were there uh, were um, they were used to that kind of thing. Uh, they were a bit more grizzled, maybe. Uh, I'm going to describe it as. Mm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I never really experienced that part um, so much. You know, and it seems very normal when you're up there to do that kind of stuff. And and you know, there is this kind of blind sense of trust with pilots too that if you're in the back of the airplane, you just kind of trust that everything right. that's happening up in the flight deck is safe. Well, because I've heard about people that fly, say, and this was what kind of plane, like a Cessna, or what sort of planes were you flying? Twin Otter. That's right. It's it's a Twin Otter, so that's a 19 seat a twin engine airplane. Yeah. Very rugged. It's built in Canada. Uh, you put skis and floats, and big they, they call them tundra tires on them. I was going to say that my experience, like when you hear about people getting into like small airplanes and going in, especially into remote areas that can be quite nerve wracking for someone who's never done that before as a passenger. And so you're saying like, did you encounter that where people were like clutching their seat, like scared? Cause this is not a typical airplane they're used to flying in. It's usually a, a commercial airline jet, whatever. Uh, from a safety perspective, uh, I think it's the, it's not the airplane that that's dangerous. You know, we we think that the bigger the airplane, the safer it is, and that that's not really true. It's it's the other stuff that uh, I think can be dangerous, whether it be weather or things breaking, um, 
or or the pilots themselves making mistakes. Yeah. You know, that's the stuff that's dangerous. And so, you know, up in the Arctic, when we were, f- or when I was flying up there, you know, landing on an unprepared strip isn't in itself inherently dangerous. But if you do it when the conditions are bad, you know, it's like riding a motorcycle. It, riding a motorcycle isn't dangerous per se, unless you're, it's raining or you're on the highway and you're weaving in and out of traffic and that kind of thing. It's like you have to, you have to make sure the conditions are safe for it. So, and, and not to say that flying an airplane in the Arctic is like riding a motorcycle. It's just an analogy, but, but the, you know, a twin otter is, it's got the turbine engines, which is the same as a jet engine on an, on a big airplane. So it, it, statistically the chances of the engine failing is, is, is very low. Uh, and it's a simple airplane. So there's fewer things to break. So John, when you're talking about how you got started, uh, as a pilot, that's something that was of particular interest to me because my 12 year old son, uh, he's huge into aviation and that's as of right now, uh, that's what he wants to be uh, a pilot. Um, he actually recently joined the, the, uh, air cadets. Um, so I guess maybe one thought process and correct me if I'm wrong in this is that in order to gain experience, um, would be maybe to go the route of joining the military. Uh, because I'm assuming that in terms of being a pilot, it's getting, getting your hours in, getting the opportunity to, to, to fly planes. Um, you know, is, is, do you think military is, is a route to go for someone that, let's say, wants to be a pilot? Um, yeah. Well, so first of all, I think air cadets are, are, are wonderful. You'd, you'd be surprised at how many commercial pilots were air cadets when they first started. And it's only a very select few that get selected for for pilot training because that, that part is very expensive, so they can only afford to train a, a select few. But, you know, the vast majority go through that and, and meet like-minded people and they become their friends and their colleagues throughout the whole career. Uh, so, I, yes, military is great. Um, I've met lots of fantastic ex-military pilots. But, but again, that that's also not... I would say the majority or, or even the most common route. Um, I, I think that is one route that's wonderful. And I think the experiences you would gain in the military are, are fantastic. Um, but uh, lots of different ways to get there. The most typical thing to do would be to, to enroll in a flight college. And there's some really wonderful flight colleges that you can even get a university degree from uh, uh, or, you know, do what I did, which is go and study something completely different or, or just go to any, any flight school in, in Canada and, or wherever you are in the world and, and ask, how, did, how do I become a commercial pilot? And then they'll happily train you to do that. So I want to get back to that cargo question earlier. The, any strange cargo, strange people that uh, yeah. you want to share in your experience, whether it was up north or whether it was <laughs> on your commercial flights now? Yeah. Okay. So I'll give you, I'll give you one of each here. So, uh, as I said, when I was up in the Arctic, we would bring, uh, equipment, uh, you know, and people up to do exploration and, and depending on where you were at, there were different rules. Uh, so one particular place we went up, they, they had to bring everything out, everything you brought in, you got to bring out again. They said, and, and this camp was built actually on the frozen lake. They were drilling through the lake, the ice, and down to the uh, the bottom of the the lake to get core samples. 
so you know we would we were disassembling the the camp before the end of winter and there was a big pile of bags on the side there uh, and we're you know we would fly bags all the time like soil samples we call them so this is what they would pull out of the ground and have analyzed so you got to got to bring that pile of pile back to town so you know we had you know we throw the bags like it make a little line like whoop here you go and throw it in the airplane and bring it down into town and we did this uh probably six or seven flights and cleared up that whole big pile of bags and then we got back to the camp and uh we took a break and we went into the kind of the kitchen tent and the guys the, the cook is like hey so you guys wash your hands yep you're pretty clear cavalier about those bags there tossing those things around but yeah yeah that's what we do we do that all the time feeling pretty proud of myself here and he said, well, you know what that was? Uh, soil samples? No, that was the, all the poo from the whole year. <laughs> oh, <yikes. laughs> like human? Yeah, human, human poo. Yeah, so they had an outhouse, but because they, they're on a lake, you can bury it. So they had, to, they had bags for all their human waste. So, oh, my yeah. gosh. Wow. <laughs> and was it frozen? or It was, it was frozen solid. Yes, and it was. I was glad, in retrospect, that I did not know what in the world that, that was that I was throwing around. But yeah, you're very, you're yeah. very glad that the, the bags did not break. <laughs> bags didn't break. Frozen, yeah. and that. How long was the flight back? Because I would think some of the stuff might start to melt, and then maybe some odors might start to make themselves present. Yeah, it was. It was quite a. It was a short flight. I, I, I seem to recall it being a you know twenty or thirty minutes into town, but. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, all right. So, that's so, that's one. Yeah. So, Go ahead, Paul. so that would be fair to say that is your most unprecious cargo is bags of shit. <laughs> yeah. That that would be that would be it, and probably the most expensive shit that I've ever flown around. By the time you figure the cost of <laughs> having flown yeah. out of there, and then you know at Porter, it's nothing like that at all. I, uh, I'll tell you, we had one around TIFF. Uh, the uh, the movie festival Toronto. We, we often fly a lot of celebrities, and I I remember around that time we went to New York. And I was the captain of the airplane, and uh, and when you're ready for boarding, the, they usually board what they call specials first, and these are you know wheelchair passengers or you know uh, little kids and that kind of, that kind of thing. So the, the the customer service agent said we have we have one special. Okay, bring them down. So. Uh, uh, that's to you or to you or to the over the loudspeaker no to me the the customer service agent asked if we were ready to board and, I, and yeah. she said we have we have one special so that that could be any anything right right anybody who needs pre-boarding uh so she said and it's hugh jackman mm. okay uh and he's got an emotional support animal okay <laughs> so so down comes a Hugh Jackman, and he's got a like a perfectly manicured bulldog. <laughs> not and a you're not supposed to, No, and you're not supposed to bring a dog on board unless it's emotional support animal. So, you know, I ask, uh, you know, uh, well, I was a little starstruck, as you would be around Hugh Jackman, and I said, oh, it's just so wonderful to have you on board the airplane. Uh, and I said, uh, you know, I, I like your dog. I, I didn't know you had an emotional support animal. And he said, uh, no, no, it's just my bulldog. And then I thought, oh, geez, now I'm supposed to kick his dog off the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Which you promptly did, of course. Which I did not. I just said, oh, okay. 
<laughs> but did did you make the dog buy his own seat though? <laughs> I didn't even do that. I was just way too starstruck for any of it. So I guess the I guess he had done the same thing when he checked in, and the customer service agent just marked it as an emotional support animal, and off he went. So, so. okay, so when you have like a pa- a celebrity passenger, like do they? How do they? How do these guys fly without being like? He sat at the front of the plane. Usually they sit at the front, right? So, like, everyone comes mm-hmm. on. He's the first guy on. Everyone's going to pass by. Does it, it cause a big commotion? Do people mostly go about their business and just didn't even recognize him? Or do you, do you, do you, like, what, how did that go? I think people do, you know, when it's Hugh Jackman and he just looks exactly like Hugh Jackman, people obviously recognize. Uh, but yeah, there's, there are a lot of celebrities that fly. Uh, like, you'd be surprised how often common that is and and most of the time they you know they'll dress in a certain way or maybe wear a hoodie over their head or whatever it is to not look obvious yeah uh but uh i think some some of them do look exactly like you would imagine the two on tv as well now he's uh, supposed yeah, to be a super in fit like did you did you get that sense when you met him like he was just like super fit very fit and very very kind and very nice he was quite happy to to chat uh and I, I don't know what would happen if I told him that he had to get off the airplane with this emotional yeah. support animal, but claws would have come out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. yeah, that's why he was being super nice to you because he uh, he didn't want you to kick his yeah. dog off. <laughs> oh, that's what happened. I was just thinking, I was, uh, you know, he was just being nice to me because because he, he thought I was great. But yeah, I got played maybe. If just for Hugh Jackman, I heard him on an episode of Tim Ferriss, and he's he's great. He was an amazing episode to listen to. Uh, it's actually why I bought a rowing machine, not to get us off track, but bought a rowing machine because he's a huge proponent of rowing as far as work as working out. And I think he can do two thousand meters in seven minutes, which uh, I can do it in about ten. So mm. it's an incredible. Um, it's kind of a benchmark to do 2000 meters in seven minutes. Apparently that's what he does. So not to get us too far off track. And we also weren't going to make this episode completely about, about uh, aviation, but I do find this pretty fascinating. Some of the, the things we're hearing here. And, and, and we learned something here is that, um, you know, if John is the captain of, of the flight, I can walk on board with my gerbil cage and claim that they're emotional support animals. Yep. <laughs> yes. We now know how to get it done. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not a VIP, so I probably would get kicked off. <laughs> well, yeah, but and and the rules around the emotional sport animals are are very loose. That that is one thing that I do find very frustrating. You see all sorts of weird things. It was it was another lady that I, I remember was causing quite a ruckus. Their dog was barking, and to the point where before we left, I had to get other flights that can go back and see what in the world was happening. And she said, "Oh, not to worry. I've just given him some drugs. He'll be sleeping in a few minutes." Well, and then, on a- like. Who's the emotional support animal? Is it you or is it the dog? Like- well, that's it. So on a previous episode, uh, way, way back with Simon, we talked about emotional support animals. I think we had, we talked about one where someone brought a peacock on board uh, an airplane. Mm. And, uh, Simon made the point at, at, uh, that sometimes who is actually the emotional support here? Is it the animal or is it the, the passenger supporting the, the animal? So, hmm. but a peacock. I don't know if you've ever seen a peacock come on board, John. I, I unfortunately have not seen a peacock come or on board. any strange animal, like any strange animals as emotional support animals. 
just uh, misbehaving dogs uh, is is the worst one. Hugh, Hugh Jackman's dog was perfectly behaved, by the way. So, it was yeah, I can imagine mm-hmm. that. I would expect that's how it would probably be with Hugh Jackman. But you don't see that very often. Like not on on flights that I've been on. I haven't seen any emotional support animals in in the cabin. But have you so seen animals? No, like I haven't seen any animals. Because usually, if so it's if it's there, it's it is an emotional support. Yeah, um, yeah. Although I think you can take like when we were in Japan, there was uh, we had uh, two cats, and one ended up coming to Japan. And I think there the option was there to bring the the, the cat in a cage under the seat, and it didn't have to be an emotional support animal. I don't think like it could. That's some people. That's how they transport their pets. Yeah, you can typically. <clears throat> depending on the airline, you can simply pay a fee to have a, yeah, like a, a, an animal that fits in a, in a bag that goes like a carry on. So it would have to fit underneath the seat. God, just imagine, mm. you know, like the, the, it's been in there for three hours and you take it out and it mm. escapes running through the airplane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. cat running all over the place or a dog or yeah, monkey. <laughs> Spider monkey. Yeah. <laughs> Any burning questions, Paul, for for John before we before we move on? We can always bring John back. Uh, no, I, I think um, yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing your your knowledge and, and your experiences and, and how you got started. It's I've always wondered, you know, how does one become a pilot? Um, so it's uh, I'm, I'm glad you kind of um, you know informed us all as, as to the the processes in place. And as I said, because my son is. is Shown such a, a keen interest in it, um, something that that I've now become quite interested in in learning that process. So uh, no, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, not a problem. I had one question, and I think you've told me about this before, John, because this military thing came up in the past. It wasn't that something that uh, the military requires, like uncorrected twenty twenty vision or something like that. Is that still a, a thing or? And that was an inhibitor to going that route potentially for you. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, well, for flying fighter jets, for sure, you have to have that. Uh, yeah, as you can imagine, if you're, you know, pulling three or four G's and your contact lens pops out, then that's not a good thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know, there's lots of flying jobs that are not flying fighter jets in the military. You know, helicopters and transport planes and that kind of thing. Right. So that you know, I don't have twenty twenty vision, and and I didn't in high school before I got into uh, flying either. You have to have correctable to twenty twenty to be a pilot. That is a bit of a misconception. Okay, and, and does that include things like LASIK? You can have LASIK. Yep. And was that always the case, or is it just because those sorts of surgeries have become more advanced and now they accept it? Yes. Yeah, so. That that's true. So in the early days, it, there was some reluctance to accept LASIK as a as an approved method for correcting your vision. But but yeah, today lots of pilots have have done the the laser eye surgery thing, and as long as again you can you can go for the chart and prove that you're correctable to 2020, then then you're good to go. So there's an article that uh, was was I came across through a friend of mine recently yesterday actually the article from linkedin called the 41 big ideas that will change our world in 2023 
And I was first fascinated a little bit that there's this is all going to happen in 2023 was my first reaction to reading through some of these things. But what we wanted to do was uh, talk about you know, two or three of them that jumped jumped out for us. And uh, so these are things that this article believes will will be a you know game changers or, or will will be a trend for for the new year that we're in now. And you know the one of them number eight was uh, was crypto, and th- with Sam Bankman Fried and then the FTX meltdown, crypto as you kind of have a love or hate relationship, I think, with crypto. And uh, this article is saying that crypto facing a trust crisis will confront its biggest hurdle: widespread adoption. So I'll just kick it off. Does, do I, any of do you either of you guys own any crypto right now? I don't no, myself, I, no. I, but I did, sorry, I, I did invest in crypto technology, uh, which I've sold now. Like I'm, I think I'm done with crypto. Crypto technology? Yeah, like uh, just a, c- a couple of stocks that were not crypto stocks, but, uh, you know, crypto technology stocks, that kind of thing. Okay. So, yeah. But they weren't coins. No, that's right. Yeah. It's just and- too volatile, I think. For me anyway. Well, and I think it's one of those things that people like a lot of things, and you could include stock in this, is that people think that by because there's been so much hype around how much they it's it was when it first came out at, you know, and then it, what it when it I mean it was what seventy thousand dollars a coin at one point, up from you know a couple hundred dollars when they first came out. So I think there's a get rich quick element to, to a lot of these things, and I think that's where um some people feel, oh, hey, if it went from ten thousand to seventy thousand, well, if I don't get on this now, maybe I'll be missing the boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when it comes, when I was going to say, when it comes to crypto, yeah, l- leading up to its its downfall, yeah, it was definitely so. Like the the the, the trendy thing for people to to jump on board with with getting into to crypto. Now you, you don't hear about it as much in terms of, like you don't see the commercials nearly as much as as you used to. So. I don't know, maybe it's just the perception that people have started to lose interest or have moved on to something, to to alternatives to this? I mean, I do. I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't understand crypto or or, um, what's the other name for it? Uh, Crypto, um, cryptocurrency. What is it called? It's uh, like blockchain, you mean? Yeah, the blockchain. And and I but there's a there's an easy tendency with this sort of stuff that just because you don't understand it, you know, you can take the sort of old man approach that this is ridiculous. This isn't. This is, um, you know, I can't touch it, feel it. it it's this thing in the in the cyber sphere. Um, I do think there's a lot of logic behind it in terms of of what the background, like that. It, it it. I think it is still. It's not going away. This is not going away, but um, it's too easy, I think, to dismiss it as, you know, you think it's this kind of strange technology and it's just going to be a fad. I don't think it's going to be a fad. That, that element of trust, if we go back to the trust thing, uh, you know, with cash, you can, you can always go to the ATM and, and get a lot of cash out and stick it under your, your pillow. Uh, for me, I don't carry really cash around anymore at all, but... I think at the end of the day, to get mass adoption, you have to like be able to put your fingers on something. And so the fact that you know the four or three of us here could 
you know, have a big uh, speculative debate about what the blockchain really is, is, is mm-hmm. kind of the root of the problem. It's like, it's so hard to put your finger on what, what a Bitcoin is. Right. Cause it, cause it doesn't physically exist. It's just uh, a node on a ledger somewhere in cyberspace. Yeah. yeah. So I bought some Bitcoin, not Bitcoin, but I bought a few cryptocurrencies about six months ago, partially because I was thinking, oh, I just want to invest in it to understand it because mm. it's like real estate and that's real estate topics come up on a couple episodes that until you're actually in it, you really truly will struggle to learn ab- about that thing. When you're in it, you start to read up on it. You start to there's some some impact on you uh, by by investing in it. I didn't buy a lot. I bought about fifteen hundred dollars worth of of various cryptocurrencies. Um, just you know, I just thought I got to get into it so that I can at least learn more about it. My stock, my cryptocurrency holdings are down about thirty percent since I started investing in it. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to cash out. It's just going to stay there. It's just kind of a placeholder for me. Will I make a lot of money off it. Probably not. But, uh, so I do own, I do own some. Yeah. I think for, for currency to be widely adopted, it has to be stable. Yeah. It's why, like, it's why people always flock back to the U S currency when the markets are volatile. It's, it's because they you have to have a stable currency for, for it to be widely adopted. And, and the, f- the fact is that Bitcoin isn't it by, by just the, its nature, it's not stable, and that's what's unregulated it too. Yeah, and it, and it makes it exciting. That's how you can double your money is by it being so volatile. But right. that's the very thing that means that you can't. You're never going to go pay for coffee in Bitcoin at Starbucks because that coffee could be then worth half the price to the seller the next day when it's all of a sudden dropped at half its value. But people can buy things like coffee and go to Subway with crypto. But so, so does the price change every day then? But I, I don't know because I've never paid for things in crypto. Well, I guess it's like going to a Starbucks in the U.S. with a Canadian credit card that today your exchange rate was this. So now you're going to get it's going to cost this much in U.S. dollars. I think it'd be the same thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But but changing a percentage point here and there is different than right. Know, 20 or 30 percent or whatever it is. True. True. Yeah. Uh, Paul, you own any crypto? No, I do not own any crypto. Um, You raise a good point about, you know, until you you purchase some and and force yourself to get involved and into into sort of have a a stake in it, that only then is when you're truly start to learn something about it. Uh, You know, that's a good point you made, you know, with respect to both real estate and and crypto, but no, I, I haven't bought into it. Uh, my brother has, and he, he's tried to explain it to me, but it seems to go over my head. Um, but no, I, I would like to learn more because you're right. It's not going away. It's, it's definitely, um, you know, a means of, of, of currency that is, you know, will continue to develop in the future. I don't know what we're going to see in 2023. I, I think the, their predictions for 2023 were, were, were pretty bold, but, um, yeah, it's it's not going away, and it, it, it's uh, it, it's definitely going to advance over the next few years, and maybe one day it will become more mainstream. 
All right. Um, another one from here was uh, number seven was cities will feed themselves. And John, you you found this one interesting. What what jumped out for you on the, this one? Yeah. So, you know, I think it, to feed yourself, you'd have to support yourself through the whole year. Um, you know, I, I like going to the supermarket and being able to buy an apple every day of the year. But, you know, living in Toronto here, we, we obviously don't grow apples uh, all year round. So sometimes it's local and other times it comes from warmer climates like Mexico or, or California or whatever it is. Uh, and I think it's important yeah. to say, though, that, that I probably should have done this with crypto. What this what this article is saying <laughs> is that a new crop of indoor farms now taking root in cities around the world could help feed the, this booming population, which is 6.5 billion will be living in urban spaces. So mm. the whole talk is about these vertical farms, warehouses converted into growing spaces for crops ranging from leafy greens to herbs and strawberries. By 2030, the indoor agribusiness could be worth $33 billion. So back to your point, um, I, you know, to turn all this around and get this going in 2023 seems a bit uh, ambitious. So can I make a point about the environment though? Uh, I think that the, for, for crypto too, like, I mean, the crypto is incredibly energy um, wasteful burns. Yeah. A lot of carbon. Yeah. Uh, but also with, uh, with food too. I mean, the fact that I want to have an apple every single day of the year at the supermarket means that it either needs to be grown in some sort of artificial environment indoors, which is going to, you have to heat it and light it and all this kind of stuff and provide a tremendous amount of water yeah. or have it shipped from Mexico, which in itself is very energy wasteful. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe the problem is me as a consumer is that we expect the same thing every single day. We should just be instead of just eating what's in season. Right. Whereas for us in Toronto, that if you aren't talking about imported or indoor grown, it could be fairly limited. Yeah. It's almost impossible unless you want to eat just canned food or, you know, pickled things or like that. Mm-hmm. That's how it traditionally you would, you would preserve, yeah. right? The old days. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think this has a, a lot of merit to it because you're right with that many people living in cities the the food has to come from somewhere and we're seeing it even here in toronto with you know recent headlines with with housing developments being built on on green spaces um so yeah farms are becoming more and more um i guess decimated by urban growth um farms are becoming further and further outside the city so um yeah to to convert um industrial warehouses into basically greenhouses i guess um, it probably is, is, is a true necessity. What the article doesn't mention here, which I'd be interested to know is in terms of, uh, like genetically modified food, you know, in order to, to produce this much food, um, you know, in terms of any kind of like growth hormones that are being yeah. used. Is to, it safe? How healthy this. is it? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. We've, we've, <laughs> created a means to build or, or to, to grow cheap food within the cities themselves. But is this food going to be healthy? I think that that's a, that's a key point yeah. right there. 
and we're seeing, you know, more and more people are, are trying to get away from, um, you know, GMO foods and, you know, more to, to healthy foods that, um, you know, I guess, or organic foods that are, are grown naturally as opposed to being grown in, in you know, um, large warehouses and in greenhouses and areas like that. So, yeah, it's just, um, a lot of different things can come out of this and that, um, yeah, you're going to sort of see like a, a fork in the road here where one path goes to, you know, cheap mass-produced food because if you have to feed the people in the cities, maybe the, the lower-income people, but, you know, you might see people that are in higher-income brackets that the, the there might be more of a push to, to natural and, and organic foods. Yeah, and, and land is, uh, you know, People are building on land, so farmland all over Ontario. This is actually a bit of a hot button, right? The green space mm-hmm. thing, and that um, you know, if, as farmland gets built over, uh, people are deciding to sell their farms. They don't want to be in the, the agriculture business anymore. They're getting older, retiring. This the places to do the farming is is also reducing, and yeah. you could say climate change well, is also making some areas of the world less able to grow the things that maybe it was growing. 25 years ago if you recall one of our previous episodes i think we talked about golf courses being torn down due to the farmland being expensive so you know if if you got golf courses being knocked down farmland is definitely going to get knocked down because if farmers you know in most cases the their the the newer generations don't want to get into farm work anymore right Um, yeah so yeah a lot of farmers are, are taking the payouts because their land is so valuable all right, let's take one more thing uh, from here. Uh, number 19 was cities will turn themselves into urban reserves to limit mass tourism. Uh, says here that global air travel has rebounded to nearly 75% of pre-pandemic levels, according to September data, uh, but expect local communities in tourist hotspots to only let their floodgates open with supervision. Just interesting that some cities have been overrun with tourism or the, the uh, particularly European cities and that uh, Barcelona, for example, is res- putting restrictions on tour group sizes um, and even the use of megaphones, it says here. I guess that's what mm. the tur- yelling out, doing the tour guiding with over loudspeakers, I guess is what that means. Um, this was it. I just thought this was interesting to curb curb the the visits um which i don't know if that would make retailers happy yeah the, think- the, i was going to say the the portion of the article here which really tells it all you know venice um you know in terms of creating urban reserve curbing the number of day visitors requiring tourists to purchase entry tickets when not, when not staying overnight and they can risk fines. So that I found particularly interesting in terms mm. of making a, a, a day trip into a city. You have to pay admission, which is really, I've mm. never heard of that before, but I guess now we're, we're seeing that come about. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, COVID has reset people's expectations a little bit. I'm sure if you were a resident of Venice, it was, it was a bit of a, it was nice not to have a million people invading your city every single day yeah with tour you know with with ships and tourists and stuff like that but you know venice is such an interesting example it's a it's a relatively small city with uh 
limited space because of all the water and the canals and stuff. Um, it's probably not the same for places like New York or Paris or London or other places. Uh, can you imagine having to pay a fee to enter London, let's say, or New right. York? I just couldn't work, I don't think. But or we, we could see that in, in terms of North American cities. Like, for example, like Quebec City, um, it, that's a small area. Like, you may have to, you know, will there be a day where you have to pay admission to, to do a day trip into Quebec City or something like that? Um, you know, it could happen. I could Maybe. see it. I could see them embedding it in a way that's almost not as, like, you're not at a gate where you're going into Quebec City and giving somebody, you know, tapping your credit card or, or paying money. It'll be more discreet. It'll be like the way they do with the with airports, where you're paying some sort of a, a levy for flying into that airport. I think that mm-hmm. would be how they might tackle it. But then would that curb the tourism or would it just be another income source that's being brought in at the, at the back end? Well, when you think about it, we've kind of been paying those fees for such a long time, um, like hotels, like tourism fees. VAT taxes. or um, Yeah, VAT mm-hmm. taxes, even at restaurants. I've seen tourism taxes at, at right. certain restaurants, depending on where you are. So in some ways, we have probably have been paying some of these tourism fees, quote-unquote, for quite a few years, and, and most people don't even realize it. Yeah. So free market economics, is that what we're saying? Is uh, expensive hotels and uh, taxes and fees that will drive the tourists out? Yeah, I I just, I don't think it'll make a difference. I I think it would have to be to make a difference. So if the idea here is to try to curb the amount of people coming into the city, I think you're going to have some people that aren't going to appreciate that because they depend on that business. I think you would have to make it so obvious to the person like literally you drive up to the gates of quebec and you have to tap your card because it's 30 dollars for the family to come into the city i think it's going to be have to have to be that obvious to actually make any kind of a difference yeah no i think you're right in the article it says here expect certain cities like new york london etc to tamp down on short-term rentals so for example airbnb Mm -hmm. and I, i wonder what that means like if you're coming in for like a four-day visit is that what they're trying to trying to to cut down on like I, i'm a little confused on yeah what that means. it's a good point it's almost i don't really understand that all that much either i know that you know as the article as the that section says it that there's been a lot of um regulate uh conflict between say new york city and airbnb and that they're saying there needs to that there's a strict new registration system coming in in january um but it doesn't really relate back to how is this going to curb tourism because there's still hotels. I guess unless they're saying this provides more options for people to come to the cities, so they're trying to shut the inventory down a little bit maybe. I, I don't really get that either. Or they want people to go to the hotels, therefore they're paying their additional taxes and fees. Well, a strict new registration system uh, would imply that that would be picked. That would be part of that. So, for example, my Airbnb in Trenton, four percent is charged for every guest. As a, uh, it's what Trenton has decided they want to take a piece of the action on every Airbnb rental. So that 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 would be similar to a hotel. It's actually what the hotels would charge. So when when you hear about registering like Airbnb and certain, it's not like this in every city. Some ban them outright. Some have really strict rest- restrictions, and others just say, 
4% on any booking, which is what hotels have to pay. That That's how that appears or what that looks like. So isn't that, in essence, what we're talking about then is a fee to enter? Yeah. I mean, 4% is pretty significant, I think, if you think of the grand scheme of it. Yeah. It is. When you look at as an Airbnb renter, like as a, as a guest, you have your per night fee, you've got your cleaning fee, you've got the 4%, you've got tax. It does add up. Like, I mean, I, as a host, I've had a few people come to me and say, hey, after all your fees and everything, this is way too expensive. Would you consider reducing your nightly rate? But like, I I can't control these other charges and this is what, the way it works. So, you know, no, I'm not going to reduce my monthly rate, whether you're family or not. Right. <laughs> and so just so the listener knows, that was me asking that question. Yes. Yes. Well, John. There's no friends and family rate. No, we talked about that. Um, okay. Well, there's a lot of stuff in that article. We don't have enough time to go through it all, but we did want to have a bit of an opportunity to, I had some things I came up with that I wanted to ask you guys about real quick questions. Um, so allowances for your kids, do you guys have, uh, do you, what's your philosophy on allowances for, for your kids? Uh, Paul, what, what's your, do you have, a, does your son get an allowance? Uh, how does it work in your family? Yes, he does have an allowance. Um, it's about t- well ten dollars a week, but only if he does his chores. So okay. you know you have to work for that money. It's not just given to you. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, we, my wife and I, we implemented this maybe about a year ago, um, just sort of as a as a means to teach. How'd you come up with a number? Um. Well, and I guess we kind of played around with it. Initially, I think we did like 15 or $20 a week, but then we realized that was kind of a lot of money. Um, so I think, I think $10 is enough that it's not like a, it's not going to break the bank, but it's enough that it teaches them, teaches my son. Um, you know, there's incentives involved in terms of completing tasks or, or doing what we, what we ask him to do. Um, it, you know, it's, it makes for a good reward system, but it, it's not a, re- you know, a large amount that it's not going to, you know, make, make a big difference. But, um, yeah, I think uh, around the age of, you know, 10, 11, 12 and up, I think allowances can, can be a positive thing for kids. How about you, John? Yeah. So I have to be a bit careful because both my kids are avid listeners of the podcast here. That's uh, right. But, and they're I know, I just had to, ideas. Is he going to get <laughs> yeah. more? Is he, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we, my daughter's 17 and my son is 12 and we, we, we talked, we talked about allowances incessantly between my wife and I, and, uh, we just, we haven't, uh, given them an allowance and I, I'm not even sure if that's the right way forward or not. Uh, my daughter has a job now, so she, she earns some money on the side and yeah, my son, he, he obviously doesn't have an allowance, but he seems to hoard his money in his bank account too. So He's got his birthday uh, money and Christmas money it, and things like like from family and yeah that, that's that's starting when I start seeing the numbers adding up of when these these birthday parties it's not an insignificant insignificant amount no that's it so he yeah both of them have quite a healthy bank account and they probably have more cash on hand than I do yeah so <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
One of the philosophies with allowances, though, is that it gives the kids an opportunity to just have a float that they can choose what to buy things with. So we have allowances for our kids. It's $10 each. It's been that way for about four years. My kids don't really listen to the podcast, so um, I'm not too worried about what, what they might think. I could say that we've never raised it, so inflation hasn't hit mm. the allowances. It's been pretty much frozen since the last my, – my kids are 14 and – and 11. So they've had allowances for probably the last four years. What I liked about them was that if we went to something like a Christmas market or a, a, a tourism y place and they wanted to go to the gift shop, then it was like the allowance would be there for that type of thing rather than us having to, to kind of deal with it on an individual basis. So we could say, well, do you still have allowance money? Well, yeah, we do. Okay. Well, if you want to buy something here, then you can buy something here. Yeah, yeah. And I, th- I think the good thing about allowance is that it also, like uh, our thought process is that it, it's to teach them the value of a dollar, um, to make them understand that, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. Um, so a recent example is I, I mentioned before about acquiring these gerbils as, as his uh, Christmas Gerbils gift. don't grow on trees either. <laughs> well, exactly. But, you know, these gerbils, you know, he's been pestering us for about six months now to want these things. And obviously there's going to be startup costs involved and, and we, as his Christmas gift, we bought him like, you know, the, the starter kit and he received a bunch of gift cards from PetSmart, uh, which helped mm. pay for, for the gerbils and, and, you know, some of the, the equipment and, and stuff that you're going to need for, for, for caring for these things. Um, but there's obviously going to be ongoing expenses. And we said to him that going forward, you know, you have to start using some of your money to pay for these, for the, for the food and, and for the supplies and stuff, because, you know, they're your pet now. Mm. And as they are your pet, you know, you have to start using your money to, to help care for these things. And, and by doing that, I think it will teach him the value of a dollar. Um, knowing you that have cats you know, too, right? So are they in a different category? Well, the, the cats are, are, you know, my wife and I, we pay for the cats. That, that's the cats are sort of our pets. Uh-huh. But, gerbils you know, the, are the further gerbils, down the food chain though, right? So, well, that's, that's exclusively his pets. Like that's what he wanted. That was, that was his thing. So it's okay. like, okay, so you wanted these gerbils. Now you have to be responsible for them. And part of that means having to pay for them. So going forward, that's the, the thought process in terms of, you know, him making money and he, he's at an age now where he can start, you know, snow shoveling and stuff like that to, to earn some money and right. whatever he gets with his allowance. And by having to use part of his allowance to, to pay for food and stuff, as I said, hopefully that teaches him the value of a dollar. So what happens, Paul, if, if he runs out of cash uh, and can't pay for litter or is it sawdust or whatever it is or or food for the gerbil do you do you float <laughs> float some money at, at some interest or uh, or well, do you just he, say that's the harsh kind of, life reality well no that actually a, a good point in that is you're right if if his money supplies tend to go down you know if he's spending it on video games then that's when we're like no you know that that's not You've got that's these creatures over here that are depending yeah. on you to uh, so the, supply them well, with that's, food. That's, that's part of the lessons that we're trying to teach him is that he wants to, you know, instead of buying $50 on a video game, you know, you better save that money, you know, depending on what your bank account states, because you got gerbils to pay for. Mm-hmm. 
I so, think this has yeah, a role. It's, it's, it's making, making them make choices to realize that, you know, you're not going to be able to buy everything you want. It's your responsibility. I'll just ask philosophically, uh, but would you allow the gerbil to starve to teach that life, important life lesson? No, like, let's say- I'm, not, I'm not that cold hearted. <laughs> hey, worst case scenario, I'll, 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 I'll jump in and, uh, no, obviously, we'll, we'll, we, we would yeah. we would pay whatever money needs to to ensure that the gerbils don't get eaten by the cats. But uh, either way, it's could, it's you could sustain the household, you know, in the yeah. winter months. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So no, we, more... we're we're not gonna we're not gonna make the make the poor little buggers starve. Don't worry. Okay, one quick last one here: spontaneity. Uh, spontaneity. You know, I think some people like spontaneity and some people don't. And the, specifically, where I'm coming from with this is with things like guests or or drop bys, like to to go and visit someone that you're in the neighborhood, right? The old days of hey, we're in the neighborhood, knocking on the door and checking in on your your relatives, your friends, saying hello. Um, we have talked about this on a previous episode a little bit. You know, is there an expectation for people to to stop by if they're in the neighborhood? But what I want to specifically get at is, do you guys have this kind of spontaneity? Like, do you have friends and family that just sort of ding dong? Oh, I wonder who that is. And then you open the door and it's your your father-in-law or your uh, buddy. How much spontaneity is in your life in general? Or is everything just pre-planned these days? Well, I, I think... Uh... So, you know, for New Year's, I, I came over to your house and that was as spontaneous as it got, you know, yeah, like a text in the morning, not a phone call because that, then the it would be you being on the doorstep, just ringing the doorbell. Yeah. So that would never, ever happen. I think in my world anyway. Right. But, but even just, you know, inviting myself, myself over on the, the, the day of felt awkward. Uh, I sort of envisioned uh, my sister telling you, "Hey, my brother's coming over, and the, he's bringing the kids. Uh, they're sleeping over, and then it was <sighs> an argument. Yeah, like a massive argument. Right. Like, uh, uh, like, lock, like, put the let the kids go to their rooms, shut the doors while we sort yeah. this out. Right. That kind of argument. <laughs> That's how I envisioned that happening. And then I just showed up uh, anyway. Um. Yep. Is that what happened in the background, Clark? Did you? No, there was no behind the scenes. Uh, I think the only thing I, I said was, damn, that means I have to like take all the computer equipment out of the office and, cr- and set up the room. That was the only little bit of aggravation, but more than made up by your, your presence and your, your, your children's presence in our home. N- nice save there, Clark. <laughs> yeah. That, well, I did bring beer too. So that, that helped. Yeah. Even better. We actually, we had a funny little thing. We went over to a, a friend's house, uh, that night who was hosting a New Year's thing. And John brought his, his pack of beer. It was in one of those sort of insulated cooler cases. And, and, um, we've, the, the friend we were visiting, he, we, we said, you know, where should we put our, our stuff, like our beer or whatever. And he says, Oh, you can just, uh, unload it all into that cooler there in the back. And I said, No, no, we'll keep it separate. Um, and then I promptly, said uh but i'll i'll take a couple beers from your cooler please <laughs> and i suddenly thought i was just trying to be make it easy but then i realized oh is this one of those things where i'm gonna we're just gonna at the end of the night we're gonna drink all his beer and then pick up the full case of john's insulated cooler pack and and leave 
Yeah, so that is what happened. And Paul, just to make it even worse, when I got home the next day, I realized that Clark had put some of his beer into my cooler pack, which we also didn't drink, and I took that home with me. So <laughs> Yeah, you made had, out really well. A bunch well. of freeloaders then, huh? <laughs> well, I, made, I brought home my beer and Clark's beer, and I drank uh, uh, someone else's beer. <laughs> so the last laugh <laughs> definitely goes to John. Uh-huh. Bad. Um, well, yeah, just on, on that topic of, of spontaneity, I guess these days now where, you know, having someone just show up unannounced at the doorstep is pretty rare. It um, is. It doesn't really happen to me very often. And, and I'll be honest, I don't really like it. You know, just people showing up unexpected when you're unprepared or, you know, it's like thought process. Oh, geez, gotta, had I known you were coming, I would have cleaned the house, that type of thing. Now, Paul, um, by the way, keeps a very but, neat and tidy house. It's one of those houses that there's never any clutter around. So either yeah. he wants to protect that image that it's always like <laughs> that. And then if you just yeah. show up at his door, it's like, holy shit, this place is a disaster, yeah. Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, protecting the image. Yeah. <laughs> But, um, yeah, like it's, it's one thing to, to text people that a couple of hours ahead of time, just saying, Hey, I'm going to be in the area. You up for me coming by, you know, that, that's, that's different. Um, I, I think, you know, the whole spontaneity, as long as you, you, you text people before and just give them a heads up, I, th- I think that's the sort of the right thing to do. Um, you know, especially, Hey, you, you got that image to protect, you know, you, you right. got to have that nice clean house and clean up the, the gerbil crap all over the house. Right. Well, but John was mentioning he lived in, when he lived out up, up north, way up north, the community there was more suited to a drop by. It was almost the environment that you lived in, right? Yeah. And, and what's, what was interesting up there is that people would either, you're, you're either from there or you're not from there. And if you're not from there, which most people were not from there, um, then your friends become your family. So. Mm-hmm. Kind of like an expat community, the way it was for us in Tokyo. That's exactly it. So, yeah, people all the time would drop by spontaneously uh, up there. And and my wife and I would as well. We'd go for a walk and, oh, there's so-and-so's house. Let's knock on the door and see what's up. So, yeah, you know, you're physically closer because it's just just the the, the layout of the, the city. But... Also, people would just drop in all the time. It was, it's very different. And I kind of missed that too. There was, it was something nice about that. Yeah. I guess people in the city, there's a tendency to kind of keep to themselves, especially in the winter mm-hmm. time. You know, people kind of hibernate for the winter and you, you only start to talk to your neighbors again in the springtime. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that spontaneity thing is, uh, it, it's got a romantic notion to it. Like everyone, like, it, it is kind of cool just that somebody can just show up and you bring them in and you serve them an, an Entenmann's or a plate of ginger cookies or something. Um, so I think maybe there's some of it's a, it's a romantic notion that we're attracted to when it comes to this sort of thing. But the, the reality is, yeah, having the place prepared in a sense for the, for the visit. Um, and as well, if you're, if you were moving in a certain direction that day of like, you know, you're going to go out and do something, run errands, or you had a certain plan, and then all of a sudden, someone's on your doorstep. There's that as well. People sometimes don't like that having to pivot. Yeah, but again, that's where you would always text someone to heads up. Like the one thing to say, "Hey, I'm in the area. Would you like me to come by?" 
Right, but know, I'm saying so, if you wanted an environment or, or the romantic yeah. notion of an environment where there isn't that texting in advance, it's just, hey, we're yeah. walking by Paul's house, let's knock on the door. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's something that, that is dead. sort of, that's gone by the wayside in terms of that. It has. Well, well. guys, it's, uh, we blew past our, our stop time here, um, but I, I really enjoyed bringing John on for this this episode. I hope people found it interesting as a listener to hear some of the stories. We'll we'll definitely do some, uh, what do they call that, when the TV shows run some numbers to see how the audience, uh, what do they call it? There was a name for that, like Ipsos Read or something. With the, the, with the, 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 the ratings? Like the Nielsen ratings or Nielsen. something like that? Nielsen yeah. ratings. Yeah, that's it. Yes. We'll run some of those, see how everybody... F- response to john's uh being on the show and if he if it's positive then maybe we'll have you back uh john nice <laughs> we, we'll talk about it yeah. for four years or so and then maybe one day it'll happen yeah yeah well and, thanks and for coming how many, on how many fans how many fans are we talking about like 10 people or so <laughs> fans of who john well the listeners i we, i still like to know how many listeners are uh how many people tune in to we talked about this? That uh, how, is a safely guarded secret that only the founder of the show is able okay. to uh, know about. But we do have more than 10 listeners. I know that for a fact. All right. That's good. I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> it was great to have you on the show. And uh, yeah, I'd love to have you back anytime. Thanks so much, Paul and Clark. It was fun. Good. Well, enjoy the rest of this holiday if it's another week or whether it's ending today, uh, enjoy and we'll see you next time.